The Old Testament reading is from Leviticus 19 and Exodus 20. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over the vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. And from Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For six days the Lord made heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And verse 15, you shall not steal. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A couple of interesting passages to choose for uh, a punk sermon series, Leviticus and Exodus, reading some commandments. That doesn't seem quite uh, congruent, does it? But we are looking at the sort of punk anti-features of the character of God, and that may come across your bow a little bit um, odd. So I hope you'll stick with us um, at least through this uh, sermon, but through the series as well, as we try to get a handle on who God is and what He's calling us to do, and using some of these uh, lyrics on uh, some of these bands that might help us look at things a little bit differently. Now, I threw you a bit of a bone last week. Uh, was our first uh, Sunday that we actually used a punk uh, lyric, and it was from Patti Smith. For those of you guys who aren't necessarily punk aficionados, at least you know who or should know who Patti Smith is. But this week, we're going a little bit deeper into the catalog of punk slash hardcore, and we're looking at a Fugazi song. So uh, I don't know how many of you guys know who that is, but I want to give a hat tip to Scott Bowman uh, for recommending this song, um, because there's dozens of anti-consumeristic, anti-materialistic punk songs that we could choose from, but he really advocated for this one. Um, it didn't take too much because this is one of my kind of top five punk bands. So uh, I was very familiar with this song, and I got to listen to it like 18 times this week. So um, we're going to look at their song called Merchandise. So let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would lead uh, this meditation, that you would guide my thinking and guide my speaking, and that you would, in a miraculous, a powerful way, that you would speak to each one of us here, that you, knowing the needs that are particular to each individual, that you would sync up uh, the gospel, the good news, Jesus' work for us individually, and then would you do that for this community as well. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're talking this morning ostensibly uh, about something that all of us want 
uh, but very few of us have, and that is this idea of contentment. We all want contentment, but it's very hard to get. It's hard to find. But as Fugazi, this band, would have us consider, contentment is a lot more than just a goal to pursue because we really can't pursue contentment until we understand, we recognize what has made us discontent in our lives. And this recognition comes by asking and answering more of a a who question rather than a what question. It's not just knowing what contentment is, but we are asking who God is and who has He made us to be. And we get to contentment by first having more of something, what we would call the liberty of less. We get there by having more of who God is for us and more of a recognition of who He's made us to be and our identity that He wants us to have. But getting there is really difficult because we are constantly being sold to. Advertising's job, and I don't mean to disparage it as an industry, but one of its primary aims is to make you discontent so that you will buy something that they're offering. Discontent with your stuff, of course, but it's more than that. More fundamentally, a lot of the messaging that we receive is to grow our discontent with ourselves, with our bodies, with how we look, and with our overall identity. The marketplace that we interact with and participate in every day is more than, you see, just a financial system. It operates more like a theological system, complete with angels and demons, good guys and bad guys, gods and supplicants. It even has an eschatology. If we can only get here, this is the end times. If we can keep moving in this direction, this is what it will lead to. And it comes with liturgies as well. It comes with orthodoxies and heterodoxies. And if you don't believe me, go home this afternoon and post your opinion on Facebook, your opinion about the economy and why you think it's going so well or what could be, we could be doing more about it. Weigh in on tax policy. Weigh in on the pros and cons of government regulations and how stringent they should be or how loose they should be. Weigh in on your thoughts of supply-side theory. Maybe you shouldn't do that because it's a Sunday and it's a day to kind of lower your anxiety because if you post something like that, you're going to get called names. You're going to be attacked by the second cousin you haven't seen in years. You're going to be called a heretic by the guy that sat behind you in English class that one semester that you haven't seen in 30 years. Because why? Because everyone is invested in the right and wrong of the marketplace. Everyone's invested in how the economy is going and why it's going in the direction it is. Economics is one of the most complex, most highly technical academic disciplines, and yet everyone presumes to be an expert. And there are few things that people will defend more than their tribes or their parties' economic orthodoxy. 
whether they really understand it or not. Because Rene Chun, who writes in The Atlantic, he says in, in the United States, the market has become our real God. The market is our, our functional God. And that's true for people in the church as well. Every religion, every God has its evangelists, and they all have their commandments. And the first commandment of the market God is there is never enough. There's never enough. So pursue, buy, purchase, keep moving. And the reason that we've chosen punk for at least a little while to help us reflect is because it sees this perhaps better than other musical genres. This is one of its primary emphases is how we are all sold things and we all buy not because simply the product looks great but because we are beholden to an idea. And don't presume just because you happen to be a Christian this morning that you are not beholden that you have untangled your heart from these things because merchandise can act as sacraments. It can act as means of grace, dispensing grace from this market God, from this idea that we serve. And what Fugazi is astute enough to know is that it's not enough to just say, stop buying stuff, stop purchasing stuff, because that doesn't really get to the issue. And at the end of this song, they yell, chant, you are not what you own. You are not what you own. You see, that's much more fundamental than just stop buying crap. This is an anthropological statement. And it's rooted in a certain vision of humanity and what humanity is supposed to be. It's rooted in what I would call a theological idea about humanity. And the Ten Commandments are that such, those types of statements. When God brings Israel out of Egypt, this kind of archetypal event in Israel's history, the liberation from slavery, what does He do? He gathers them into the wilderness. Now you're free. And He does something that we find very counterintuitive. He gives them rules to live by. Now you're free. Let me give you rules to live by. But he gives them instructions based upon this liberation, based upon a vision of their humanity that he wants them to live into and to experience. He wants them to be free. He wants them to live into that freedom he had won for them. The Eighth Commandment says, you shall not steal. But what's the first commandment? The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. You see, it's rooted in something. Not stealing isn't just this abstract, binary concept, but it's an issue of worship. It's an issue of heart. It's an issue, an issue of liberation. You see, as, as with all of the Ten Commandments, there is a surface-level simplicity. Don't murder. Don't sleep around on your spouse. Don't lie that Jesus and the prophets tell us belies a deeper complexity. Think about this idea of you shall not steal. It seems very straightforward, very simple, very binary. You either do it or 
you don't. But there are different kinds of theft. There's aggressive theft. There's forcibly taking something away from someone. And some, that can have the form of someone hiding around the corner and then jumping out and taking your stuff. Or it can be very sophisticated. It can be predatory lending. It can be bait-and-switch advertising. It could be CEOs hiding debts on the balance sheet. Theodore Roosevelt says that a man who has never gone to school may steal a freight car, but if he has a university education, he may steal the whole railroad. You see, there's complexity to theft. There's aggressive theft that's taking something. There's more subtle theft that's keeping something that belongs to someone else. And I could illustrate this by asking those of you uh, that listen to music on your computer, you know, who do the ones and zeros belong to on your computer? Were you around when Napster was here? Are there any files that are still remaining on your computer from the Napster days or BitTorrent? Does everything on your computer own, or do you own it? And did you pay for it? I won't go there, so you can relax. But there's subtle theft. There's an an hourly worker not doing the work that he or she is paid to do, but there's also the CEO that intentionally underpays the workers so that the balance sheet can look better, so that they can take home a gigantic bonus. There's subtle theft, even though that person wouldn't go to jail for that kind of thing. There are ideas, there's intellectual property, there's products that are designed intentionally to fail, so you have to go back to the manufacturer over and over. But then there's hoarding theft. And this is where it may get a little bit more uncomfortable for us. Because what it seems that this Leviticus passage is telling us, what it seems that this Timothy passage that Jesus tells us is that we can steal from those in need by keeping too much. We can steal by hoarding. That is, we withhold generosity from others by making sure all of our creature comforts are taken care of and even going beyond that. And that gives us less resources, less margins to share with other people, to enable other people to be lifted up. And that's the idea of this Leviticus passage. You read some of these words and our verses in Leviticus, and you wonder, what is going on here? What is all this talk about land and sacrifices and percentages? But you see here how it's oriented to a vision of life, that those who are engaged in agriculture, i.e. almost everyone, are to leave portions of their fields for the poor, for the itinerant, for the alien to come and to have something to eat. Those who are jobless have food, in other, way, in other words. And if you, didn't, if you didn't do this, it wasn't just stealing from the poor, it was stealing from Yahweh. It was stealing from God. But more than that, it was saying something about yourself, and it was saying something about God. It was saying that He's not trustworthy, that I've got to gather everything I can because my comfort My future is dependent upon my ability to hoard, my ability to keep hold of my stuff. And this gets to kind of the more fundamental piece that this song is pointing to. I hope you read the lyrics. Because when we see stealing and hoarding, it's not just about taking from someone else. 
But when Fugazi is saying, you are not your own, what we come to realize is that as we steal, as we hoard, we're actually stealing from our own happiness. We're stealing our own joy because we are still in bondage. Do you see the Ten Commandments now, the purpose? That he wanted to liberate them by telling them how to live according to their humanity and according to how the world works so that they could be free from the things that would then enslave them just as surely but in a different form than Pharaoh did. The preamble of the Ten Commandments, at least in Deuteronomy, is I am the Lord your God who rescued you out of Egypt. Therefore now go and do these things. Always grace before law. We see that stealing, hoarding is harmful not just to the victim but to the thief. It's harmful to us when we hold on to too much. And these commandments are the means by which Israel first and by which we are to enjoy liberation. The sins you see listed aren't simply wrong. They're prisons. They're things that encumber us and hold on to us. And stealing, you see, is a, it's an evidence of bondage. It's a lack of freedom because we are so beholden to possessing that thing that we will risk enslavement. We'll risk prison to get it. The love of money, the apostle says, is the root of all kinds of evil. Not the root of all evil as it's commonly quoted, but the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have, what, pierced themselves with many griefs. That's such a visceral image. Our money flows to the things that we love. It flows to the things that we value. If you want to know what you love, open up your checking account, and you see where your discretionary money goes. And most of the time, it's toward what you love. What do you spend money on most easily? That is an indicator of what you really love. And if we love the admiration of other people, if that's what we're beholden to, if we love the freedom that comes with an extra bit of padding on our bank account, not that that's wrong, but if we become beholden to that idea, if we want comfort, if we want power, we will spend money at it. We'll throw money at it. Money, you see, isn't its own evil, but it's a feeder of evil. It's a currency that goes towards feeding our ego. It goes towards very selfish ends oftentimes. And when it does, God doesn't just say, stop it, but he says, son or daughter, you are piercing yourself with many transgressions. Come back. Let me embrace you. Be rich in his love and in his embrace. Because what looks like freedom and what we're told over and over is freedom, it can be a slave. It can be a prison. Having more is a false sense of security that will tyrannize you. But we don't see it. We don't see it because it's so much part of the white noise of our culture that we are so beholden to the market God that we don't even see it as a competing ideology. We don't see it as another master. 
And we need people like Fugazi to say that buying more is not a patriotic imperative. It's not part of being American. It's a lie that almost everyone in our country in the affluent West believes. Now, Heinrich Ibsen was another kind of artist. He was a Norwegian playwright, and he wrote a couple of centuries ago. And he says that when you take away somebody's life lie, they lose all of their happiness. When you take away someone's life lie, they lose all of their happiness. And what is the life lie that lies embedded in what we're talking about? It is that you can buy your way to happiness. You can actualize your identity by purchasing. And as long as you have something that will, you believe will fill you up if you can only get it, friends, that's your life lie. That's the thing that if it's taken away from you that you lose your happiness. If you say, if only I was married, I would be happy. If only I could get into this college, I would be happy. If only I could get this promotion, then I could settle down and I could start giving away some of my money to these people in need. That, if only, that's, that's the lie. Some of us have one, and everyone else can see it, but more likely it's a host of a lot of things that we can kind of hide and that aren't that obvious. But Ibsen calls these things life lies because they actually belittle the despair that we feel. They don't do justice to the injustices that we experience in our own lives and around the world. What he's saying is that even if you get it, it won't actually answer your deepest need and your deepest questions. And believing that it will belittles those questions. It belittles the despair that we all feel. You see, to get contentment, we first have to recognize how deeply unhappy life can be. And maybe that's your story now in an acute way. We have to realize how deep our discontent runs and the lives that we're living to try and find a cure, to try and orchestrate our own solution. And it's only as we get this, get the things that we really think are going to make us happy over and over, and we find them wanting, that's when we should wake up and say, there's something else. Maybe you're not ready this morning to say, it's Jesus, but keep looking. At least you're here asking the question, and I hope it will invite you back. What we have to do, friends, is we have to realize that there's something more to life than life is going to give us. There's something more that we want about the world that the world is not going to give us. And that's the secret to contentment. It's being serious and frank about that and not continuously living as if we can only get around the next corner, then we will be the one person that figured it out. We'll be the one person that found true joy and true lasting happiness in this world on our own. What Christianity says is that it's actually found in giving yourself away to the God who gave himself away to you the God who came in the form of Jesus, the God who stepped into our world and had joy 
in poverty. The God who found victory in death. The God who says His contentment is yours for the taking. And He says, friends, wake up. That your happiness and your identity is not in what you own. You are not what you own. But what Jesus tells us is that you are God's beloved. That He looks upon you and because of grace says, you are well-pleasing to me. And that that is an eternal certitude. That's an identity that you can live out of even through market fluctuations. Even when the market God is not smiling upon you because you got a pink slip this week. Even when you can't buy your way to happiness. And I hope that we can all realize that this morning. And I hope that we can all turn and ask God, would He be that secure center of our identity? Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us to see the things about our lives and our world that we so desperately need to see. And some of the things that look so benign to us are actually very cancerous. Father, I pray that we would have wisdom and discernment to be able to see that having things is not wrong, that purchasing things is not wrong, but that we would find a way to disentangle our purchasing and owning and the comforts that they afford us from thinking of those things as ultimate comforts, as thinking of those things as something we must have or else. God, I pray that as we come to participate at this table that we would see that you are the giver of ultimately good gifts. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.